Hello, fortune seekers. Could you scratch my back? What if I were to scratch your back? You know what we call that in the business, buddy? An incentive. We are incentivized to participate in activities and commerce every day, sometimes nearly invisibly. As X Seekers of Fortune grows, we are looking towards incentive to attract more players. What can we learn from incentive programs of the past to guide us in making the incentive program of the future? All this and so much more on today's episode of the Megamoth Studios Super Secret Podcast. Shh, don't tell anybody about it. Hello again. I'm your host, expert Filipino cultural mansplainer, Joel Watts, joined as always by the mortified Daniel A.U. willing to refute all your claims as per usual. I, I think the proof is in the pudding from the last flan guy did a knockout job. Proof is in the flan. <laughs> flan. Yes, <laughs> the flan. And speaking of last episode, on last week's episode, we had our first and if you want to hear our learn more about how to find your way through take a step back on your feed. Today on episode 13 of the Megamoth Studio Super Secret Podcast, we're going to be talking about incentives and all the benefits that they can have on your organization or um, your business. And or your some game. of the... Or game. Game. Don't forget the games. We're a gaming podcast, Joel. We are a gaming podcast. I, I think we have put that at, as both an organization and a business is a game. Um, and, but they haven't, but Danny, as you might know, and we're about to get into the stories of he's hot on the mansplaining (laughs) incentives can have both good consequences. We'll get into some of those, but they also have some strange unforeseen consequences that you need to be aware of while you're in implementing them. And we're going to, we've done some research in order to tell you a few of these stories and how we're going to learn from the past, you know, both the past successes and the past mistakes and try to implement great uh, incentives for X Seekers of Fortune. But before we get into all of that, Danny, do you want to answer a question for me? Pass. Well, too bad, because it's the format of the show, and I am the host, so what I say goes okay. until I hand off the baton. When did we agree that you were the host? <laughs> it was an arbitrary decision that we made very early on that has gone straight to my head. Okay. So, this week's question, <sighs> it comes from our Discord server, which I'm super excited about. It's it is so sign. fun when our community interacts with us, and you could become part of our community and interact with us by joining our Discord server. That's X Seekers of Fortune on Discord. And there you can ask us pretty much anything, and we'll answer it here on the show. So, this week's question comes from, and I'm, let me make sure I'm getting this right, Rickman33. Yeah, I think that's what you have in the notes. Okay. Well, Rickman33, who asked... Can we name a film you feel you can repeatedly watch more than any other? And why is it so rewatchable? Okay. Wow. Danny, do you have well, an answer? Well, I do have an answer for this. I think yeah. it's it's not the answer that most people who know I am uh, have a filmmaking background would expect. Uh, it's not Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, look, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you what they were when I was a kid. Because I watched a lot of kid, a lot of movies over and over again when I was mm-hmm. a kid, and then I'll give you what it is now. Okay. All right. When I was a kid, it was a few movies: uh, Return of the Jedi. Yeah. I watched that so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched Austin Powers: The Spy Who Shagged Me quite a bit, <laughs> and uh, I and, and I watched uh, the Indiana Jones movies quite a few times over and over. Mm-hmm. Last Crusade specifically. 
Are we the same person? Oh, maybe. Probably. Yeah. Okay. You know a lot more about Filipino culture than I do. <laughs> yeah, you're damn right. <laughs> and Mongols. <laughs> I'm a world, I'm a very world literate person, but not geographically, uh, you know, I'm not very geographically gifted, but I know a lot about the world history and cultures. We'll have to get you some more geographical gifts. Today, though, right now, I would say, and this is this is an answer that I think I'm going to get a lot of groans for, but my my like comfort movie that I'll go back and watch like maybe a couple times per year is actually two movies. It's uh, Infinity War and Endgame. I <laughs> Ooh, I don't know, man. That doesn't seem like that groanable of an answer. I mean, I personally feel like. I was a big Marvel fan, or at least I was a fan of the Marvel MCU up through Endgame because they landed the ship. And they those did. two movies go so well together because it is, it's like possibly even better than Star Wars in terms of like, you know, Empire to Return of the Jedi. This Infinity War into Endgame might actually be a more solid full story. I would say Infinity War has, you know, one of my favorite endings of any movie ever. My only complaint is that. Uh, Endgame exists, but other than that, and I like Endgame. Don't get me wrong, but I mean they did Thanos dirty. Oh, oh, I see. I see which side of the fence you're on, and you know, brother, welcome aboard on the Thanos did nothing wrong side of the fence. A hundred percent. That that doesn't surprise me at all from a Genghis Khan apologist. So. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, a strong fist leads this world. Uh, no, I was going to say I I am a huge fan. Uh, to be a little more sincere about it, uh, I think that those two movies made me realize how good Nebula was as a character, or is mm. as a character. I Karen Gillian, so good. She, she is so good, and I think she secretly has the best story arc of. I mean, mm. I don't know if it's a secret, and she has my personal favorite story arc. Like, like, and that's something you can do in comics. I I always go back to this and like things that we should be thinking about in developing the story of Rex Seekers of Fortune. We should look at that as an example. She literally killed her former self in order to self-actualize so cool yeah all right well i think that's a great i personally think that's a great answer danny Thank you, Joel. yeah Thank you. i yeah you're welcome you're welcome plus you had like all the classics as uh that we both grew up on you know i was a huge star wars fan as well wore out those vhs tapes once i've discovered Indiana jones i couldn't stop watching it um so i was a huge fan of those movies but i do have to admit that um I feel like just like you movies, I, I, what I usually do is I find a movie I really love and I ring it dry. Like, like I used to do the same thing with records where you list, I would listen to it so much, so frequently in a short span of time that eventually it just wore off. Like that magic that's in music eventually dissipates if you just overuse it. <laughs> There's probably a drug analogy in there if you're looking for one, which you should be. Uh, but I will say that a movie that if anybody was to suggest that we put it on and enjoy and indulge in that I could keep going back to as an adult, and it's I think it's because I'm an adult and this is now my own nostalgia, uh, you know, 10, 12 years on, is Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Mm. I really enjoy the story of Scott Pilgrim versus the, the, the well, the universe, the, the comic book series, but it's a little rougher to sit down and read it through an entire comic book series. And the movie does a good job, a good enough job encapsulating what was so special about it. And, um, you know, what was so unique about being in an early 20s something scumbag kind of guy in uh, like the 2000, late 2000 teens aughts, I think it's called the late aughts through the teens that it is kind of like, I'm not saying I'm Scott Pilgrim and I totally identify with everything he does. He has his own issues. I had my own issues, but it's definitely like, 
being a you know a young man who isn't fully put together yet I can really identify with that. It reminds me of a better time. It reminds me of going to see shows at clubs that you couldn't even afford when you couldn't even afford a beer at the club. Nice, bro. Yeah. Nice. Edgar Wright makes some very, very rewatchable films. Generally. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's it's good that he weaves so much into them. Um, but that was that's in general our answer. So Rickman 33, I hope that you enjoyed our little diatribe into film. And we're going to be getting into more of those questions and more films uh, as the series goes on, as our podcast goes on. But if, like I said, if you want to join Rickman 33 and asking us questions that we can answer on the podcast, please just join the discord. You'll find an AMA there, post your question and we'll answer it on the show. Yeah. And add your question, any answers. If, uh, if you got movies that you love to rewatch, you know, drop them in our, our comments on, on the YouTube video or uh, jump on the Discord and let us know. We'd be interested to hear yeah. what, what your, your hot takes are. Yeah, yeah. Tell us why Scott Pilgrim's actually like the worst movie ever made. And why it reminds you 100% of Joel's real life persona. <laughs> if, you knew me at the, if you knew me at the time in my early... I did. Yeah, you knew, you knew me. But I'm saying if other people did, like, you know, some of our former co-workers, if they want to jump on this episode, <laughs> I'd love to hear stories in the comments. Can't All right. In the comments. So let's move on to the main topic of the episode, Danny, because um, okay. I think I think there's like quite a few stories to tell here. And we've actually done something called a little bit of research for this episode. So uh, we might have a few things to go off on. OK, but um, so X Seekers of Fortune and in incentives and how maybe not to use them. Okay. So, um, I, you know, I think you've told me a, a quite a few good stories about this. And I'll definitely uh, hand over this, the, you know, this oh, the reins over to you here in a moment. But, you know, basically the way I see it is incentives are a very powerful tool. But like most tools, you know, a hammer can drive in a nail, but it can also knock a hole through your wall. Your mileage may vary with incentives and, you know, incentivizing somebody to do something, you know, if all they're doing it for is the incentive itself could cause negative ramifications if they learn to game the system. Mm -hmm. So we have some examples of positive outcomes from incentives, like probably the things that you've seen in most like college textbooks. Uh, then we also, but we also have some examples of negative incentives or the even darker side of incentives quotas that have to be met. met. And then we want to wrap things up by talking about the uh, how we want to implement incentives or how we're using this information to think about how to implement incentives into X Seekers of Fortune. So why don't we start off with some positive incentives? And with that, I'll just lay out a few companies that have really benefited from utilizing incentive programs. You might have heard of them. IBM. Ooh. Starbucks. Have you had your coffee today? What? Google. I mean, you're probably on it right now. And my personal, the one that's closest to my heart is Toyota. I can't wait to own one of their cars. So all of these companies have used incentives to reward their employees and customers to, to you know, strive further to buy their products or to make their products better. Um, now, Danny, you've been in the working world and you've heard a lot of anecdotes. Is there any uh, particular incentives gone right that you can think of that you'd like to share with us? You know, I, I can give you a per personal anecdote uh, yeah. from a time that I, I utilized a incentive in order to get um, benefit for mm -hmm. for the unit that I was was supervising at the time. So um, I used to work as you did at one point in time uh, for a hotel, and mm -hmm. uh, my job at the hotel uh, required me to supervise 
the operators that answer the phones at the hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that we were really focused on at the hotel, as you would hope, was customer satisfaction, making sure people had an awesome experience. So anytime anyone would call in with any sort of issue, um, we had an opportunity for our operators to log that call and to in something that we called We Care. And what it meant was it would raise the profile of the case so that everyone in the hotel would be aware of it and we could try to action it and be proactive in delighting our guests. Sounds mm-hmm. great, right? Yeah. And so we really tried to get people to add one We Care entry per shift. Just mm-hmm. all we wanted was just one. And if we could get everyone to do one per shift, we would blow our, our, our number out of the water. We would get you know some sort of prize for our department and mm-hmm. everyone would be happy with us. We couldn't get anyone to do it ever, ever. No one would ever enter it. Maybe we get like one or two a month. Okay. Right? So my, my manager at the time came mm-hmm. to me and was like, can you figure out how to get them to do this? So incentives, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of ways you can use incentives. You could say, hey guys, if you, if you enter more weaker entries than anyone else, everyone's going to get a pizza party. That's mm-hmm. what the hotel had done. It did not work. Obviously, no one really cares about pizza, right? No. Should have done a t-shirt, right? No. <laughs> I maybe did something that I would describe as being more of the, 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 the stick than the carrot. Oh, really? I, yeah. I said, hey, guys, you don't have to put the weak hair entries at all. I don't care if you do one at all. If, if you don't, though, I just need you to send me an email letting me know that there were no entries and you need to just give me this information. So all I did was make it equal work, to, maybe slightly more work to do the negative thing that they weren't doing than the positive thing. And then my numbers went through the roof because they wanted to write me the email. <laughs> yeah, it's like who wants, who wants that hanging over their head on the like last day of the week? And it's like, oh, now I have to write an email about how I didn't do my job. Yeah, so, one sentence in the week here, longer three sentences to Danny. What do I want to do? <laughs> <laughs> that is that. OK, that is a really clever incentive. Um, you know, now that I'm scratching the back of my head, I'm like really having a hard time, uh, like coming up with a great example. I haven't worked at the best incentivizing companies before. They usually just, they go, they usually went all stick, no carrot. Yeah. That's, that's uh, how it goes. Yeah. I don't know if I come up with one, I'll insert it here. Uh, or I'll insert it at any point here, but, um, just to go back to some of those companies that I mentioned earlier, um, so with IBM, uh, I guess this was like, like I didn't get to go deep on this one, but basically it seems like they had one of the first sales incentives in the, you know, like in the country, I guess, with the hundred percent club. And like, it, they just, in, they just incentivize people selling and got, you know, with uh, trips, extra, you know, extravagant trips that you could win. And they just saw numbers going through the roof. I think they, they sort of maybe broke ground on the incentive train, maybe back in like the seventies or eighties. But I think the one that uh, most of us know about and probably have been tempted to do is Starbucks tuition assistance program, um, which makes it to where their employees are much more in uh, uh I don't want to say indebted. That's like not the right word, but endeared to the company by like I work at Starbucks. Yeah. Well, they don't have, but here's the thing. They don't have debts, you know, because if I, it's like I were, I could go and get a job at Starbucks and within a few months, I think uh, could start going to school, going back to school to learn more skills, which, you know, Mm -hmm. let's face it, we could all use more skills uh, if, you know, in this day and age. Um, so I think that that's a very endearing one. Um, and there's a couple others, there's a couple others here, but the one that I really love, like I said, Toyota's close to my heart mm-hmm. and they actually have an incentive. It's almost a philosophy. It's the Kaizen philosophy of productivity. Mm-hmm. And basically what this is, is that 
any employee who sees any improvement they can make on the line in order to make their products more, you know, more efficiently or better, they can like call a halt to the line and, you know, t bring this to their management, bring this to their superiors uh, at the company uh, and they can talk through it and see if they can implement it. And they, they are very well rewarded if they find these things. And, you know, I, I just, I mean, I don't know what your opinion on Toyota is, but my opinion is my next car is going to be a Toyota because I just feel like of all the brands that are out there, they're the most, uh, they're the most best reputation you see. Like my girlfriend right now is driving a Toyota Corolla from probably my graduation year with over 250,000 miles on it. And it's still holding together and, you know, doing her well. They called it the Toyota miracle for a reason and continuous improvement is, is super important for any organization. Um, and, and incentivizing everyone in your organization to think in a continuous improvement mindset is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think one of the keys here, um, with respect to to creating incentives, positive incentives, and, and what you see here with IBM and Toyota and Starbucks is, is, is a trend of looking at what you want from the people you're working with, mm -hmm. looking at what you want, and figuring out how you can give them reasons to want what you want. So mm -hmm. that getting what you want is the same thing that they want, and everyone wins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Makes so much sense. It also reminds me of an old truism that I heard from a manager and it changed. And, you know, like every now and then you hear one of those truisms and maybe I'm just a, maybe I'm a simple guy who these things really work on. But I feel like every now and then you hear one that clicks with you and changes your life a little bit. But they said, what is measured is managed. Mm -hmm. And incentives, more so than anything, give like a little ding when something goes right. And so you can start measuring it. And if you're measuring something, that's when you can actually apply data and start strategizing around it. And we've had that happen many times where all of a sudden we go through the looking glass of something not really mattering to us or not really being on a radar to us actually starting to pay attention to it, to us actually starting to master it or at the very least have like opinions and ideas and tactics for it that we're trying to implement. And I feel like incentives, not only are they a good way to give rewards out, to show appreciation, to really highlight great performance, but it also means like this moment is, is, is celebrated and notated. And that means, you know, that means it can be, like I said, it can be mastered. It, you, you're starting to measure it, so you're going to manage it. As, as we're going to see as we go deeper in here and then eventually towards the end of the conversation, bring it back to game design and discussing game design. Incentives really inform human behavior. Um, and oftentimes mm -hmm. when you look at what a person is doing and why they're behaving in the way that they're behaving, you need to look at their incentives to figure out why they're doing what they're doing. Because mm -hmm. generally speaking, people will do things that make some kind of sense. It may not make obvious sense, but mm -hmm. there's something going on that is benefiting them with, with how they're acting. And, and it can be obscure, right? It could actually be something completely internal and psychological. They they get a benefit of feeling like they are wronged or, or victimized. There's something going on inside them that is actually rewarding them for, for having that feeling and mentality. So there, it's not always clear what your incentives are, but if you see human behavior and you wanna understand it and you wanna figure out a way maybe to redirect it, it's very important to understand the incentives that influence it. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's, there's a lot more, I mean, and trust me, like, how should I say, uh, to, 
to talk towards it, but also, you know, um, kind of avoid the topic a little bit since we're not that kind of podcast. I will say often when you're hearing people talk about political situations, they often will, when in their criticisms, will talk about how people were incentivized to do what they consider the non-good thing, the non-moral thing. And that's why so and such and such administration or this policy was wrong or things like that. Or And also when you look at good things, uh, often, you know, they will point to like, well, the incentives were there for everybody to do like to come together. So it is like, you know, I'm not going to say you can boil everything down to incentives, but you can definitely you might actually be able to change the course of human history with the proper incentives. I agree with that 100 percent. I think Upton Sinclair put it very well when he said it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Yeah, which, you know, definitely has some like some dark implications. Uh, there was another quote that this almost reminds me of as we move into the negative side, that negative outcome of incentives. Um, this one has stuck with me for a long time, too. I forgot who said it. Do you want me to Google it really fast so we're full? You can or we can just like go full ignorant and just kind of just no, guess. Why don't I you think, I think this guy, I'll... this guy's name should live in infamy because he's <laughs> he's right, but it's also dark. Uh, Ooh, okay. I can... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little commentary as Joel does the Googling. For those at home, Joel has like a has a really intense look on his face. He's got his fingers locked in. It's like a, a scene out of a, a movie where the hacker is trying to desperately break into the mainframe to destroy the Pentagon. And I mean, you can see the, the sweat glistening on his forehead. You can see the intense stare uh, on his face as he hones in on his prize, which is... Um, a quote with a proper attribution in this particular case. Um, oh, <laughs> um, um, I, it is. It's actually one of those things where <laughs> the quote is a uh, has a deeper well to like actually has an entire article about trying to figure out who said the quote. So I'm going to say that this is maybe one of those one of those like it was said by somebody and it just took off. You might have said it. I could have said it. Yeah. Let's say Joel said it. Yeah. We well, saw why the not? Right here. Okay. What but, is it, Joel? Okay. What did you say? Well, it is. I. You know, the the famous quote is, "I can hire half the poor to kill the other half," and it's like to me, there's a kind of a negative incentive there. The idea of like, why would this this person be incentivized to change the world for the better when he knows that the people who you know between the the have the have nots, there's the ones who will strive to get just a you know a paycheck, and the ones who will you know, are weak, uh, are weaker and will be pushed down by those. So, you know, in a way, I mean, this might be a little bit off the beating path. Maybe we could do an entire episode on that quote alone, but yeah. I do feel like that is, that kind of shows like how incentives can become, you know, can be used uh, tyrannically. And so we do have a few examples of that here. What motivated you, what motivated you to say that in the first place? Um, that's the truth. <laughs> I'm rolling in it. And, uh, you know, all these poor folks, you know, you don't you don't even need half to, to, to control the other half. You only need like, you know, five percent of highly motivated people to uh, really rain terror upon the rest of the populace. This is another one of your lessons from Genghis Khan. Yes, exactly. I mean, Genghis Khan was not efficient enough, in my opinion. You really could have learned. If you give Genghis Khan an Excel spreadsheet, boy, would this world have been a different place. 
So the uh, negative outcomes for incentives though have been numerous and we do want to avoid those. I know you have a few bangers of stories, so let me go ahead and like just rattle off a few of these low hanging fruit examples. But to give you an idea, there was the uh, famous Wells Fargo aggressive sales quotas, which caused them, their employees to secretly open up like savings accounts for their customers, credit cards for their customers, affecting the customer's finances and, and credit score. This was, you know, so bad that you have probably received, if you banked with Wells Fargo, you've probably seen, received some sort of financial compensation for it. Um, another example is standardized testing in general. There's an exa example out of Denver uh, where teachers were paid for their performance. And all it did was incentivize teachers to identify the students who would do better than average at the standardized test and focus in on teaching them to do you know, to be as good as they can be teaching to the test and then neglecting the students who they wrote off as lost causes because it would be better for them to make a student go from an 80% to 100% and raise the overall curve than it would be to, you know, uh, spend way too much time getting everybody at the 80% mark. Uh, so how things are measured can also have a big effect. Like you have to, you know, the measurement is probably the most important part of incentives. Um, finally, and probably the most tragic of these three that I'm mentioning right now is the incentivized opium, opiate prescriptions that happened uh, pretty much across our lifetime so far. Like we, we grew up as the, I would say we were in high school as the opiate crisis started to escalate and it's just been a constant i think it's kind of trailing off now but uh, you know or gone back underground it's at the very least not at the same uh horrible state it was where doctors were incentivized to prescribe opioids to their customers or not to not customers these aren't customers these are patients man and uh it's just it's that's a drug that once you get on and get a taste for it and learn to be comfortably numb you're going to be chasing it i mean we're talking a drug that could you know, that you can get from your doctor that's comparable to heroin. So, you know, these, the, you know, the fact that, the, that a company incentivized doctors to prescribe that as just a generic form of pain relief is practically like the sin of our age amongst, amongst many. But I know you have some great examples, especially in the terms of quotas. Yeah. Yeah. So one, I mean, these are stories that I've picked up along the way. I mean, our listeners may have heard them somewhere else. I don't know, but I thought it would be perfect for illustrating what we're talking about here today. Mm -hmm. So I may get the details and the facts wrong, but the general just holds, and I think it will be uh, il illustrative. Um, so first one, Soviet, Soviet Russia. Stalin's in charge, and he learns that his fishing numbers are down and says, hey, we need, we need to catch more fish. We need to show more productivity um, so that we can feed our people and show statistics that, you know, tell, tell, tell the, the people, you know, that we are catching sufficient numbers of fish. So no one wanted to actually, you know, tell Stalin the truth about, you know, the challenges that they were facing actually catching that number of fish. So they had to find another way to achieve their goals without uh, upsetting Stalin. Mm -hmm. And as the story mm -hmm. goes... Nobody wants to upset Stalin. No one wants to upset Stalin. As the story goes, the way they did this was they classified whales as fish and then they caught whales because the way that the number of fish or the amount of fish that was being caught was measured was by weight. So by catching whales, they could make it appear as though they were catching many, many more tons of fish than they actually were. And because 
the incentive was, you know, catch this many tons of fish, someone came up with the idea, well, what we'll do is we'll reclassify this as fish. And they completely went and did the complete opposite of what the whole program was intended to do, which was feed people, catch fish, feed people. Instead, it was get that number as high as it can. And the easiest way to do that is to get big, heavy whales as lua fish. Yeah. Um, also, I think I, I did do some reading on the story and uh, not only whales, but endangered whales for the area. Like yeah. they definitely had a this had a very negative consequence on the, you know, the ecology or the environment as well. Now, the, the, the second story from history, which is um, a little bit, you know, I think a little bit cleaner, perhaps, um, you know, there was a period of time in, in the late 1800s, uh, sorry, the late 18th century, mid 19th century, where uh, Britain was transporting its, its convicts to its colonies in Australia. And the voyage would take several months, and it was notorious for its high mortality rates. A lot of, uh, of the prisoners would, would die en route due to the poor conditions, disease, and mistreatment by the ships. And it became a, a big outrage in the UK, uh, in, in Britain. And people were really upset because, you know, some of these convicts were, were family members. At the very least, it was, you know, people dying. I think this was, it was in the age where you could be a convict just for having deaths. I think debtors' prisons were probably a thing. I don't know. But I, I, I think that that's probably part of the reason why there was so much outrage. Anyway, so many of these, these convicts were showing up in Australia dead. Um, there, there was outrage at home. And... It took a long time. Everyone was trying to fix the problem. Nothing that they could do would fix the problem. And then one day, uh, someone within the British government recognized that there was an incentive problem. And the incentive problem was the captains were being purely paid for transporting. They got, the convicts would get on the ship. The captain would be paid by the head. And that was the end of it. And then whoever showed up, showed up. So what they did was they changed the payment scheme to pay them for the convicts arriving in Australia. So now all of a sudden, captains aren't getting paid unless they have convicts walking off the ship into the Australian con colonies. And you can imagine how quickly those mortality rates dropped just by changing the incentives. So it's super important when we're looking at constructing systems, which in the case of games, we're talking about systems, that we are incentivizing people to do the things we really want them to do and we're paying attention to the times where we might be incentivizing them to do something that we don't want them to do. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more when we get into the game-specific portion of the conversation. Oh, yeah, that's going to be coming up really soon. I mean, I just wanted to, uh, you know, not to soapbox it too much, but to give you an idea of, like, an incentive or, you know, an incentive that really backfired and we're going to be, like, looking at the consequences of uh, probably over the course of the rest of our lifetime is uh, China's one child policy. And now this one was uh, pretty simple on paper. They were trying to uh, keep population growth down by saying every couple could only have one child uh, amongst them. Um, but this also caused a lot of ramifications uh, in the immediate moment, but also now that that population, that generation is coming of age. I want to say it's pretty much our same generation, maybe a few years set back and that generation has a gender imbalance because unfortunately it you know <laughs> you know they didn't take into account it's like if you know one gender boys are 
for a family worth more for them in the long run than a girl. A girl for in Chinese culture was uh, seen as like a, something that would cause you, you know, to incur debt versus to gain you income. And so that means if a unfortunately, if a girl was born, there was incentive now for you to lose that girl so you can try again to get a boy. And, you know, whatever method, a dark method comes across your mind. Um, not only that, but it also is now causing a imbalance of the generation where this generation coming up is actually smaller than the generation that's like getting closer and closer to retirement age. That's something that's happening in a lot of places in the world right now. And we're about to, we're probably going to see quite a flip in like, you know, uh, you know, what is it? Um, yeah, not just demographic, but like the entire economy is going to shift because of it. Uh, and you know, you hear about it happening in America a little bit and it's going to be a little bad for us, but, uh, in China, I know Japan as well, it's going to be way worse because of, uh, well for, for China, because of these and like basically bad incentives that got put in years ago and you don't know, like, and that's the thing, you don't know the negative consequences of decisions, you de policy decisions you make now y you could make a bold thing that you think is going to work wonders and then the negative side of it won't reveal itself until it's too late and you can't turn back on it and you're just going to have to deal with the ramifications and that you're where the world <laughs> you know if you're a board game designer uh who specializes in economic warfare i'm sure that this will be a time for you to learn a lot of lessons about it coming up in the next few years um so but i do think like we've kind of laid out the groundworks incentives can be very good and they could potentially grow your business rapidly, give make the experience that you want your business to deliver. In your case, the de the delivery of the of the experience it can incentivize the employees to actually follow through with it. Uh, great examples, um, but they can also have negative consequences that we've talked about here. Um, you know, especially when the incentives are about quotas and numbers on a spreadsheet. That you know often doesn't always translate to a healthy society which most uh, or business so how are we danny how do you imagine we're going to use these lessons that we've learned through our lifetime to incentivize our players uh to play our game and to you know maybe even evangelize our game to other gamers yeah i mean there's there's two different ways that incentives might be relevant to people pursuing game design <clears throat> first um designing the game making players do the things that they want to do, want them to do, and uh, making sure that they don't do the things you don't want them to do. Uh, and then second, as you're building your community, finding ways to encourage people to play your game and to share your game with other people. Those are going to be like the two main ways that most people are going to be interested in how to leverage incentives to benefit their, their game design goals. What we've talked a lot about some of the ways that the game has been broken. And oftentimes it's because the, the incentives are kind of off, right? Um, we had for a very long time incentivized losing as an optimal strategy by giving players access to more resources when they were behind. So if the best way to win the game was to collect the most resources and convert them into even more powerful resources that you could then use later in the game to beat your opponent. It became incentivized within X Seekers of Fortune for a time to fall behind, to be losing, and let your opponent get ahead so that you could gather as many resources as you could and clobber them. 
And when we realized that, we realized we were incentivizing people not to try to advance their game plan. And if two players recognize that the optimal strategy is not to attempt to win before the other person, then neither person is completing adventures, which means neither person is progressing the game, which means at a certain point, they're just in a stalemate of not playing the game. And there's 0% chance that a competitive um, uh, game community is going to spring up around an environment where players are disincentivized from advancing in gameplay. Yeah, no, I, I mean, and I was there for like some of these early revelations about how the, the game could be, you know, I feel like, I feel like I'm like the one who always like people figure out how to break, break the game against maybe it's because I'm just so earnestly going for like the honest victory. Um, but yeah, I've probably been on the, 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 uh, you know, the, uh, stick end of that, uh, argue, you know, a situation, but I, it is, it's like, yeah, if you, ins we, ha you have to be careful in making a game, you can incentivize people to play your game, to not have fun. People will prioritize winning over fun. And yes, they will do that. And they will pat themselves on the back and finish your game and then probably put it away and never play it again. As I've said before, there, you know, magic is a robust game. We, we love it, but there's a lot of the aspects to magic and you could easily spend a lot of money to make yourself play magic miserably because there are decks out there, especially in fun formats like commander that you could go and spend thousands of dollars to make a deck that will nearly, I don't want to say guaranteed win it. Like it'll win against most of the field until you run up against one of these other guaranteed to win decks. You know, I think that's like, you know, S tier decks, if you will. But if you're winning all the time, you're not going to be having fun. If you're, especially if you're winning in a way that isn't clever or isn't to your play style, Danny, I know, you know, I, I often lament about how you're a blue player and you have a deck. I, I'm not sure how you feel about this deck, but you had a deck that in I called it inevitability. If we didn't gang up on you, you were going to win sometime around turn five or six. You didn't do all that much before those turns, but once you start going off, there was practically no stopping you. And I, but at the very least, that was an expression of you like as a player, that was, that was like your version of magic. And I can respect that, but you know, there's a lot of decks out there that you can just, you know, go online, you know, net deck, uh, you know, net deck, like the best, there's probably like three best commander decks. You could try to make one of those for probably four or $5,000, uh, to make it super optimal and then just have the worst time playing commander. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, and we've, we've encountered people like this, but I mean, it's true. I mean, Magic talks about having those psychographics, right? There's the Timmies who just want to do big, fun, dumb things. There's the Johnnies who want to show you how clever they are with their combos. And there's the Spikes that are just going to do whatever it takes to win. And that may include playing the game in a way that is decidedly unfun for both themselves and the people they're playing with, because that's what's optimal. That's what's going to win. So when you're, when you're designing your game, it's super critical that you, you, you're honest with yourself about what is the optimal strategy and are the people who sit down to play the game who are going to find a strategy that is an unfun play pattern for themselves, for other people, and then effectively, to your point, Joel, stop playing from that point forward and find ways to mitigate those strategies and point winning strategies towards fun. And to whatever extent possible, if you can make losing fun, then you have a really, really good game. 
because if losing's fun, then it doesn't matter if I win or lose. If I'm having a good time, I'm more likely to run it back. Now, look, I say these things, and this pertains to a specific type of game, right? There are some games that aren't meant to play be played optimally. There isn't one way to play. We're not talking about all games, right? But for those out there trying to make competitive games with you know competitive strategies, make sure that the strategies that your players are incentivized to pursue are not unfun by by nature. Yeah, that's a very good point. Now, there's two things that uh, came across my mind while you said all that. And one of the things was, A, I think we could make a really fun where uh, it's like where, yeah, I like, we'll maybe cut that out, maybe believe all that because I think it's a great that Danny and I could probably perform. The main I'd love to do is uh, for that, whatever. Um, but yeah, would be really fun. Anyways, uh, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, what is measured is managed. And sometimes in order to measure things, you have to create like a box to put people in. This is why marketing puts people in boxes. And what Magic the Gathering did was they created the three psychographs or they discovered and defined the three psychographs of gamers that they wanted to appeal to in their game, the Tommy's wait tommy timmy think or timmy johnny and spike so timmy johnny and spike are like they can create specific incentives for those three those three players their incentives are designing cards that appeal to those three kinds of players making sure there's enough balance between those cards that all three of them can have a good time now the spike is probably still going to win most of the time yeah and, and and just because i know somebody out there is is raging at us right now for not mentioning the other two psychographics there is uh vorthros and melvin as well Vorthros is the lore-centric one. We're actually getting to our own Vorthros uh, with our uh, with where we're at in development of the game because we're having to like create the uh, art. We're we're working with artists to create the art, and we're actually having to like come up with all the little stories that go on the art uh, of the card. So I know Vorthros, but what is Melvin? What is Melvin? My understanding is Melvin are the players that are really just like the mechanics geeks. They're really interested in the way that the game technically works. Okay. And so they geek out over new mechanics, but they aren't necessarily motivated by um, the other things. Now, I could be wrong about that, you know. Yeah, in yeah. The comments if I am. I mean, everybody who kind of like wants to, you know, um, carve out their own very specific niche. But I do, I do think Melvin does sound like a type of player who isn't the other ones, or it's like a subcategory that would attach to any of the other types of players because, um, you know, that's the judge. That's the person who wants to become a local judge, right? basically, mm -hmm. or somebody who wants to like try to use Magic the Gathering to create another game, which uh, yeah. we definitely need to try a few of those here on the podcast and review them. I really would love to uh, try, what is it called? A Forgetful Fish. Mm -hmm. uh, so is that we, what it's called? I believe so. I, I forget. I, I, I think I know what you're talking about, but <laughs> uh, I don't know exactly. Yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, we're going down the Magic the Gathering pipe uh, uh, rabbit hole, which uh, you know I, I really enjoy, and I can't wait to talk more about Magic, which is going to be coming up very soon. Yeah, we've got uh, some big guests lined up for that. Yeah, exactly. But let's get back to incentives. So that's how Magic has used incentive in their game. You know, 
So we have the three decks, but everybody was enamored because the most unique cards and the most interesting cards come out of the Action X deck. And there was only one way of drawing Action X cards for the longest time in our game, which was completing adventures. Yep. And once we got that feedback, and I had like, I, you know how it goes. Like usually when we finally make a decision, one of us has been banging the drum about it for like a few weeks, if not a few months in advance. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like one of us was saying that there has to be some other way of getting into the Action X deck. We got to figure that out. And I remember we had a play test with your brother, Lucas, and his girlfriend, Sam. And that was the key takeaway. We finally, we finally heard loud and clear the thing that would make me more interested in this game is if I got more Action X cards. And that, you know, finally let us uh, figure out, uh, you know, decide we need to make a mechanic to do that. And we implemented it. And there's been, I think, a few more, you know, uh, situations like that. But yeah, ultimately, it's either giving the players what they want or making sure that they can't do what we don't want. Is there any other gameplay specific or game design specific things before we move on to the more meta, you know, uh, marketing idea of it all? No, you know, not not specifically. I mean, I think that you know, if we went through, we could dig through it. But I think we 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 pretty well illustrated it with, you know, both the the example of incentivizing players to fall behind as as an example of a, a incentive that we mismanaged, uh, or or were not properly, um, you know, monitoring and managing, mm -hmm. and then also with um, introducing breakthrough as an alternative way to incentivize people to play the game more by giving them more of what they wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are like definitely two of the clearest examples in the game itself. Now, um, sorry. Now we are also starting to talk about, we're moving into the marketing of the game. Uh, we're moving into this game is slow, quickly becoming more and more of a reality. As I said, we are actually looking at, um, uh, artwork coming in on nearly on a daily basis, yeah. like, like little improvements in art. So like more and more it's becoming, we need people to know this game, play this game. So, um, I don't think we're going to make steadfast announcements here, but we have some brainstormed ideas on how to add incentives to the play experience. Uh, do you kind of want to lay out like a little bit of the roadmap for what we're yeah. thinking and why we think this is going to, you know, bring more players in to play more frequently? Yeah, I mean, we're not reinventing the wheel here. Um, you know, this isn't this isn't going to be you know exciting news to anyone. Something they haven't heard before. But price support is an enormous motivator for a lot of players when they're playing games. And so we are working on our our initial price support, um, and we're going to be offering it um, online to players uh, who participate in our our beta. Um, and help us with playtesting, and we'll, we'll have more details rolled out probably by the time that this podcast um, airs. Mm -hmm. You know, Joel yeah. probably will come on with some, you know, some sort of uh, addendum, kind of giving you more of the the details. But at the time of this recording, it's still very much in in the cooking phase. Um, we're we're just tweaking the numbers and making sure everything. Um, is attractive enough to players mm -hmm. and sustainable enough for, yes. for a business <laughs> yeah. that is just well, starting out in the world. I'll tell you this, there's a truism in, uh, you got to spend money to make money. And yeah, you definitely need to offer people some, you know, early adopters, some freebies in order to get them to evangelize your game. I mean, I would say like the model that we're essentially going for is what you'd probably see in, um, uh, a car, you know, a, a app like game where it's like checking in, playing more, gets you more rewards. 
Um, so we don't know all the numbers, but basically we're going to start tracking players uh, and we have to, you know, there's a lot to figure out here. It's going to be good for our business because we're going to have to find a way of tracking our players up, you know, how many times they play the game. The, you know, if you reach certain milestones, say you play 25 or 30 games, you get a prize. So we're, and it's going to be good for us because we need to start building those infrastructures on our side of things in order to track our players and, you know, to know if our incentives are working or not. Yep. You know, I mean, you bring up a really great point there, which is, you know, when we, when we decided to, to launch this um, price support program, you know, the, the, the first inclination is to do what everyone always does, right? Which is, mm-hmm. you know, if you win, you get a prize, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that makes sense in certain contexts, but this is why it's important to take a step back and say, what am I truly trying to incentivize? And if you're trying to incentivize people playing the game and you reward people from winning the game, you're saying, okay, only the people who play and win are going to find this program to be exciting and beneficial to them. And the people who play and lose are going to back out and not even try it. Or if they haven't even started, the prizes aren't going to be interesting to them because there's, you know, how long is it going to be before they're good enough to win one, right? Mm-hmm. So... We, we look at that and we say, well, actually what we care about is people playing games. We don't care if they win or lose. So mm-hmm. why don't we design a prize support program that only cares about whether you're playing or not? And then, mm-hmm. our, then it, to your point, Joel, becomes about validating them actually playing the game. But, you know, that's an example of taking a step back, looking at the situation, figuring out exactly what you want and adjusting your model, your system to optimize for a very specific output. In this case, games played over games won. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I I completely agree that, you know, uh, the more, (laughs) it's almost a Stockholm effect thing, right? Uh, The Stockholm syndrome. The more you play a game, the more you tend to like fall in love with it uh, for whatever reason, especially as, as we've talked about with our game. When I teach somebody to play the game fresh, one of the things I always love to bring up, and maybe it makes me sound like a smug <laughs> let's face it, you, you wear the mask that you're given. Uh, I always make sure to let people know when they feel like they've made a mistake or something like that. I'm like, you have to remember, this is a game that you pay, play. You're not meant to be playing this game once or twice or three times. This is a game that you play 50, 100 times. You're meant to master this game. These mistakes that you make now are only going to reinforce you becoming better at the game. So I think that anybody who plays this game 50 times, as long as they're trying to get better, they're going to pick up strategies along the way that will make them be able to play at in a competitive space uh, on a competitive level. The really the only thing that I think separates people who could have a chance playing competitively and those who can't are the ones who just know how the game works. And the only way you're going to learn how the game works is playing it more often. So I think, yeah, it's like, you know, we're going to have, I think, I think once we get this up and running and we got some really sharp players out there, we're going to have tournaments where the winner is, is taking home, you know, the, the cake. Uh, but that's, a place we're going to get to but right now what we really want is just people to be good at the game and to have a loving relationship with the game and that just requires time and putting in the hours and putting in the rounds and the reps yeah 100 percent. yeah well, well did you have anything else that was on top of your mind about the uh incentive programs that we might be implementing now or in the future no, no, I, I think that pretty much covers it. I, I mean, if, you, if you'd like me to sum it up with just a few key takeaways. Um, I would. It's really trying to understand exactly what you want 
mm-hmm. and figuring out what it would be that would motivate someone to do you know, or f- perform whatever behavior would produce what you want. When you see somebody doing something that isn't what you want, try to understand what's motivating them to do that. You know, those are examples of where positive and negative incentives come from. Ultimately, it's really about understanding exactly what the outcomes are that you want to achieve and understanding what the drivers are for people to behave the way that they do. So um, take time. You know, oftentimes what we, we do is we say, hey, you know, we have to do this for this reason. This is either we've thought about this a bunch and this is what we did or, you know, this is the way it's done. Whenever you find yourself thinking that way, take a step back, pause, think from first principles, say to yourself, why does it have to be this way? Are all the things that were true when I made this decision previously still true? Are all the things that uh, are normally true in situations where this is the norm true and, 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 and relevant to the situation at hand for me right now? Um, and you'll, you'll avoid making a lot of mistakes if you, if you take more time to think through problems from first principles. Okay. No, I completely agree. And yeah, and, and well, I think you said it best, uh, you know, you got to go back and update your, you know, your understanding from time to time, because incentives that work this decade might not work next decade. Hell, incentives work this month might not work next month, you know, for whatever reason. So, you know, just remember, this is, this is also kind of a trend thing. So, you know, uh, keep keep that in mind. You know, check. You know, just because something set is set up and successful doesn't mean you can ignore it. You know, turn around and ignore it. Hence, why Toyota still allows employees to, you know, shut down the factory. You know, like put a stop on work in order to express how something could be done better. You know, that you're never you're never too old for that, or you're never too long for that. So, uh, we do have. You know, we have something random coming up i believe but for right now uh really quick let's do a teaser for next week and you know what <laughs> so we're going kind of two for two on next episode we got our second guest ever ben mertz from affect games for good and he's going to share their mission for teaching you know games for good as well as making the best print and plays you have ever seen on tiktok and designing a truly meta game and i'm going to get to play that game with ben himself so tune in next week for that. Okay. Well, I hope you don't have to do anything oh. with pro wrestling. Oh, wait. I, I, I wrote this in. I need to start saying this. And sorry, audience, but you're going to have to get annoyed by this. So subscribe to our channel and ring that dang bell so you can get uh, that pod when it is hot and fresh. Are you ringing that bell, Danny? I'm ringing the bell. I'm ringing ding, all ding, the bells. Ding, 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 ding. Dinner bell. Because that's hot and fresh <laughs> podcast coming straight to you. When you ring that bell and like our show. So please press the like button right now. I'm sure we've said something that y- you liked. Yeah, Anyways, probably about Danny. Genghis Khan and Excel sheets. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I can't. I, I, I think we came up with a new game already. So, Danny, you have something for me? I do. You know, this has been a trying day. This is a double header. Yeah. We've had two... Uh, episodes recorded today, which is not normal for us. My brain mm-hmm. is fried, and yeah. I did not. I spent a lot of time preparing for the interview that we did mm-hmm. earlier, and did not spend a lot of time preparing something random. So, I'm going to propose that we do a draft, like we have in the past when we did movie okay. theater snacks. Okay. And I am going to propose that we do movie villains. You draft movie villains. Okay, so are we drafting them to be on a team that fights against each other, or is this just like to be our personal Mount Rushmore? 
your personal Mount Rushmore. Okay, cool. All right. All right. I'm going to go ahead and give you first pick since you are the host. (laughs) The most. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah. Fascination with Mongols. Yeah. Movie villains. Now, movie villains, they come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. And you know what? I think it would be... There's one who's on top of the mind, but I don't want to uh, snipe one of your picks because I know that it's going to be very important for you. So I'm going to move over to, I guess, a villain that fascinated a lot of us. Actually, no, no. I should save him. I need to, I need to pick a big, a big guy. That's how drafts work. Just so you know, the way you, you draft first round pick. Yeah, you got to take a you got to use your first round to take a first round worthy pick. I got somebody who's like, you know, potentially not going to come up at all. So I have to pick a heavy hitter. And that brings me to one of the best tragic heroes of cinema. One of the most powerful characters of cinema. A man who could stand at the end of a hallway and make an entire audience scream and shout with the flick of a switch on a lightsaber. Mr. Darth Vader himself. Darth Vader has to be one of the top movie villains of all time, one of the most iconic. He has a sound, just a single sound that you can play this in shivers. That's that's iconography. And I was there day one with all the Star Wars fans when Rogue One came out. And, the, you know, they almost shouldn't even have the scene with Darth Vader in it earlier because the hallway scene was all that audience needed. We were cheering in delight and squealing with like, you know, demented, you know, like pent up rage of like, you know, just seeing this horrible mutilation of these poor rebel soldiers at the hand of the most powerful space wizard in the galaxy. And it was so fun. Wow. Well, Vader is definitely a pick that I think would be very hard to argue with for round one. Pick Mm -hmm. one. Mm, I think, you know, obviously I think you're alluding to the, the other more recent big bad, which is Thanos. And uh, I will take Thanos with my first round pick because, um, like I said, I mean, they did Thanos wrong. Um, you know, one snap's enough. <laughs> Just let him be. Yeah, let him stay on the farm. You already lost Avengers. They broke yeah. space. They broke space time and the quantum zone in order to defeat Thanos or to revert to Thanos's plan. But they were really sad. You have to give them credit. They really That's made true. those. They made them sound. They, they made everybody they, so sad. They were so sad. I think that 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 five years later, you know, title card actually like surprised me. Like in the theater, I was like, oh, we're go- we're going there. <sighs> Anyways, okay, there. Hmm. I'm trying to think of another great first round draft pick. How many picks do are we going to go total? Five each. Mount? Five each. Okay. So I'm trying to think of like at least one more like super iconic, big, big bad. Like you know, just like the well. Okay, if I'm going super iconic, a character. I almost regret they are so they are so good that they got under the skin of the wrong kind of people and made a generation of man a certain kind of man insufferable but you can only achieve that when the character is that good and that complex that you know people who think they're complex latch onto them 
you know, like, you know, dirt latches onto soap or something like that. This character is the crown prince of crime, the clown prince of crime Can in I Gotham take a guess City. Who it is? Oh, well, I think were you who were you going to guess? Borat. <laughs> that is actually yeah, that should be considered one of the great villains of our time. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen is is a bit of a menace uh, in some regards, but he's also uh, he he uses his power for both good and evil. Uh, no, of course, I think by the by the time I said clown prince of crime, you knew who I was talking about. Yeah, the Barat. Joker. Oh. What was that? Barat. <laughs> okay, so the Joker is, you know, obviously Batman's number one villain. I find it so odd that, you know, uh, such an iconic villain is a clown, but so appropriate. And to the point where I'm starting to think, you know what? Clowns have a resurgence coming. I think there's a place in our society for clowns, and we need to start embracing them. We all had the funny meme that we were all afraid of clowns as a kid, but that was that was just a funny thing to say. I don't think it was actually that true for all that many people. Shout at me in the comments if it was true for you, but I really think we all just thought it was something funny to say that clowns terrified us. And then we had, you know, the the weird viral marketing for it. I'm still convinced where clowns were uh, ever present and ever terrifying, like intentionally scary clowns. Uh, you know, that was a craze, if you can believe it. What, in 2000, what was that, 17, yeah, 16, 17? Yeah. It was kind of like, you remember when those monoliths started appearing everywhere? I do. I kind of remember that. It was like that with the clowns. They were just like, yeah. hey, there's a clown over there on the edge of the woods just staring menacingly at us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it took off. It was, it was a weird, you know, subversive trend. But the Joker... Uh, there's been many different interpretations and I got to put my chips on the Heath Ledger interpretation, the agent of chaos version of the Joker, because it's like for better or worse, he, you know, he kind of has some points that you might want to mull over uh, throughout that movie. I'm not saying, I'm not saying he's right. I'm not saying he's like Thanos level. The Joker did nothing wrong, but I am saying that, you know, he, he for being a comic book movie that character the conversations he has with batman definitely spurts bring up some high level philosophy that is going on in like the psychology of man okay okay yeah. i'm going to go with somebody who's less of a villain and more of just a mentor hannibal lecter okay that's a good one sticking on the the trend of choosing people who have a bad rep and did nothing wrong. <laughs> I mean, people who eat people are the luckiest people, aren't they? We are on a roll today with the, the poor killing the poor and <laughs> Genghis Khan using Excel. <laughs> I guess I, what we're learning people is I'm about, I'm about the to, luckiest people. <laughs> I'm about to become the villain of this podcast. You have um, for a long oh, time, my dear. I'm not about to enter. I actually think I'm about to enter my villain era. I'm just going to let folks know I'm going to do something with this mustache I got going on here very soon. Um, Is that a temporary tattoo or a real mustache? <laughs> it's a it's a push broom. Um, okay, <laughs> I don't even want to know what that means. I thought it's not what something that they call a mustache. They call it a broom, a face broom, or something, a lip broom. I forget. Uh, so I'm on okay. pick three. I, and so now we're, we're kind of, you know, I've got two big boys on the, on the board. I got my two all-stars of villainry. I could probably put in some more support players so I don't have to be as high up. I think it would be, it would be a little wrong. Well, I shouldn't say a little wrong, but it, I don't think a list without of 
comic, well, I have a comic book villain. What am I saying? I'm going to move off the comic book villain, actually, now that I think about it long and hard enough. So I'm trying to think of a villain who's really, truly terrified me. Like, you know, like the one who has that monologue that's just so cold that you just can't help but think that they're, you know, more than just right. See, now that, like, you know, I keep thinking towards Indiana Jones, but the weird thing about the Indiana Jones film series is they, they not weird, but uh, I think smartly divided their villains between usually a, you know, a heavy who didn't, who had a good presence, but wasn't really like all that deep. And then like a much softer, you know, more industrious style villain. Um, and so n none of them feel like the full package. So I'm kind of moving away from that. Like you want a villain who just truly terrifies you. I think we're going to have to go with uh, No Country for Old Men. Um, Anton Sugar for the pick. The villain who is his practically death incarnate. The villain who will just show up to unannounced, unnoticed, and end you while looking you in the eyes and have nothing nothing like remorse nothing like feeling just you know just cold calculated machine doing its work so yeah that's pick number three okay i'm gonna i'm not gonna i'm not gonna stick get, move away from comic books i'm gonna stick with comic books i'm gonna pick one uh, which is another MCU performance that I felt like I was very impressed by. I'm going to go with Killmonger. From <sighs> that, when I said I was thinking about picking a comic book character, that was who I was about to pick. Oh, dang. Yeah. No, Killmonger. I'm glad we get to talk about Killmonger then because he is one of my favorite MCU villains of all time with the best line in the MCU. Aside, well, there's two. I have two favorite lines in the MCU, and one of them is Killmonger's. Tell us. Which one? Oh, the uh, throw uh, throw me over. What? <laughs> I got to say it right, Danny. It's too good of a line. So let me r bring it up. Okay. So I'll try my best to not overdo this. Bury me in the ocean with my ancestors that jumped from the ships because they knew death was better than bondage. Depends what kind of bondage. Oh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's face it. Back in those days, they didn't have the fun bondage. <laughs> Uh, anyways, so Killmonger, one of the best lines. Uh, for the record, my favorite line is, uh, I, I think it was, I can't, Captain's Orders, which is a kind of a throwaway line from a character, you know, in Captain America, uh, Winter Soldier, who refuses to, like, press the button to launch the, you know, the helicarriers mm. that are going to destroy the world. You know, basically, Captain America delivers a speech, and this one almost nobody character just says that. And it, I think it's like the selling line. It's the cherry on top of Captain America's speech where you're just like, well, damn, anybody can be a hero. Yeah, anyone. Mm -hmm. All right. All right, it's your pick, man. It's your fourth, fourth. pick, so you got to make it count. Okay, this guy's been on my mind since the first pick. I almost mm -hmm. am tempted to save him for last, but I don't want, I want to challenge myself to have to come up with somebody in the last mm -hmm. place slot, somebody really good. So I'm going to go ahead and pick this guy now. And he is, um, sorry, he is the villain of Die Hard, the original, the probably one of the first swag villains that I really got into. I believe it goes, I believe he goes by Hans Landa. Hans Gruber. 
Hans Gruber. Oh my God. Land wait, wait. Let me retake that. Uh... I believe he goes by Hans Gruber. Now, you Hans know Gruber, Will's not going to let you get away with that. I know Hans. <laughs> I was I was confusing him for somebody else. Uh, the guy from Glorious sure. Bastards. I think so. Anyways, Hans Gruber was, I think, one of the first examples of the cool villain that I grew up with, you know, because you have John McClane who's schluppy, so you needed to have... Super schluppy. Schlooper. So you had to kind of have a yuppie to, you know, contrast yeah. him with. And, you know, Hans Gruber just had... He's played by Alan Rickman. What else do I have to say, man? That guy is cool. That guy is, like, stone cold, and his delivery, he's so fun. He's one of the great actors that we've lost in my lifetime uh, at too young of an age. I mean, he was up there, but he wasn't that far up there where he wasn't working anymore and had retired away. Um, it's, still a, it's still a sad loss that we've had to deal with. Alan but Rickman. Alan Rickman, man. But yeah, Hans Gruber, Rickman. he just, he was just, he was good enough to like be competent, but also kind of like, you know, slimy and sort of figuring it out as he went along. He was just as behind the eight ball as, uh, as, uh, uh, you know, um, John McClane was at many parts of the movie. And I think that that's like what made it so fun because it really did have that tit, uh, tit for tat cat and mouse kind of style game. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I'm going to go with my fourth pick. Yeah. To a classic. Uh huh. Rewind the clock back to 1980. Ooh. Jack Torrance. Shining. That's that's a almost like, yeah, that's a pretty pretty equal, pretty spicy pick right there. Oh yeah. Give us give us your best here's Johnny. Here's Johnny. That's not your best. That's like your your fifteenth best. Here's Johnny. <laughs> I don't think you're giving it all. <laughs> here's Johnny. <laughs> oh my god give, give it to me at a, like a 12 I, oh my god i don't know if i have a 12 in me we're a double we're double podcast recording in let me get here's johnny <laughs> i feel like we didn't land the ship but that's okay number five what do you got okay number five i really want to get I mean, you just chose such a great villain uh, from the history of villainry with Jack Torrance. I mean, and I love the fact that Stanley Kubrick has like, you know, main characters who are just villains and in mundane ways. I'm just trying to think of the great. Well, you know what? I think you mentioned the movie earlier. Maybe you mentioned it um, back in the previous record that we did. But I'm going to go with a true tragic figure that I think can be called a villain by the end of his own film. Somebody who, you know, basically got everything he wanted in life and yet nothing he needed. A villain who just through his own desires for control and manipulation destroyed, you know, many other people's lives, livelihoods and tried to make his perfect little world just so he could be safe within it and control everything. And that would be Howard Foster Kane, Citizen Kane himself. Ooh. Uh, probably one of the first great me megalomaniacal villains of cinema, one of the first great character studies of cinema. And, um, you know, if the, if the stories are true, based on one of the true great villains of America, William Randolph Hearst. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to be talking more about him in the future. Yeah, I think so. Spoilers. Spoilers. Shh. Secret. Okay. Super secret. 
Yeah. All right, my last pick, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm going deep in the annals of history here to pull out the most devious, the most disturbing, and the most reprehensible of all supervillains or other villains or villainous characters. For my fifth and final pick, I am going to go with the food inspector. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, who played the food inspector? I don't know, Joel. Who played the food inspector? We might never know, but I think if you go and watch the movie, he's probably credited, I hope. Danny, do we have a place where we can watch the food inspector? Uh, I think so. Let me see if it's on YouTube. Okay, because if so, it is in the show notes, and you should be going to watch that right now. In fact, we should make sure that Will makes that the uh, video that he puts like right up here at the end to watch. Oh, wow. There's a lot of... A lot of food inspector content, none of which is what you would think. Oh. Oh, but here it is. With 67 whole views. That is tragically low. <laughs> and one of my one of my goals is for the food inspector to at least have a thousand views. Or maybe 68. <laughs> it's more like 69, am I right? Uh, it's definitely online. It's definitely a bizarre film, and it definitely stars the one, the only, Joel A. Watts. Have a baguette. <laughs> it's actually probably my best performance in a movie. And I've uh, been somebody who's been that. casted in uh, a web series where I was professionally paid. And this was a student film for, was it even for a film class or was it just for some random, uh, you know, like uh, English assignment? You're talking about The Flesh Life? Well, that no, I'm talking about the food inspector. What did you make the food inspector for school? Yeah, I don't remember why I made it, but I made it. I think I. I <laughs> Isn't it tragic that your best films, I, not to say only your good, not all your good films. You have amazing films, but some of your best films were made for like an English assignment or a Spanish assignment. Like, I don't know. Oh yeah, I mean, I I, I really milked a lot of those assignments to make short films. Yeah, you you were you were a create you know very creative not only in you know making art but finding reasons to make art, and yeah. you know that's almost like one of those things like we're we're getting back on the back on the the track, but it can be so hard to find good excuses to make art once you get out of school because you don't have some assignment looming over you that makes you have to finish. Yeah, you gotta you gotta you gotta make your own assignments. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of assignments, I think we've assigned all five of our draft picks for this segment of the show. And I think that was a really solid, just, you know, a really fun, something random, uh, not too stressful on me. In fact, I'd say I'll play again. Yeah, I, I, I generally try to make sure that there, there are games you don't want to play a second time. Um, and then I generally try to play it a second time. So. <laughs> Okay. This to be a fail. <laughs> yeah. All right, Danny. Well, with that, I think we should be getting out of here. Do you have anything to say to the audience while on our way out? Yeah. You know, hey, thanks for listening to us. We are very tired and very appreciative of your, your listens. Mm -hmm. And ring that bell. Ring it. Ring it. And like and subscribe. And as always, you have been Danny. And I have been Joel, reminding you that you have to start somewhere. So why not here? Thanks for listening. Where is here exactly?